Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know that I will be in conversation with the brilliant author and broadcaster Candice Brathwaite at The Lyric in Soho on the 1st of November, talking all about the themes of this podcast and more. You can book tickets at fane.co.uk forward slash Pandora. History is roughly divided into two camps, those who thought sadness was okay and those who thought it was terrible. Early Egyptian, Chinese and Babylonian civilizations viewed sadness as a form of demonic possession and used corporal punishment and starvation to try and rid themselves and others of it. In ancient Greek and Roman times, doctors prescribed an insta-friendly regime of gymnastics, massage, special diets and regular baths to alleviate symptoms. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring the ins and outs of sex, self-care and sadness and lobbing big questions at my guests like, could a four-day work week ever really take off? Why is society getting lonelier? And what would a fair justice system look like? This is a podcast that asks what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. What can sadness tell us about happiness? Helen Russell is a journalist and the author of five books, including How to Live Danishly and The Atlas of Happiness. Her latest book is How to Be Sad, which explores our fear of sadness and grief in the Western world. Helen believes that we can't talk about happiness without talking about understanding and making space for sadness. Helen and I spoke in August where we discussed the concept of warm glow giving, how raising children not to smile can help them make space for sadness, what we can learn about sadness from the Russians, who have, unsurprisingly, about 12 different words for specific types of sadness, We also discuss lots of different happiness theories, like the U-shaped curve and the most controversial one of all, money can't buy you happiness. And Helen teaches me about Ubuntu, a South African philosophy which explores happiness as a community endeavour and not just as a personal goal. I start by asking Helen, what is the biggest myth about sadness? This idea that if we just push down those sad feelings or those so-called negative emotions and and just slap on a smile and try and cheer ourselves up and get on with our day, that suddenly those feelings won't be there. And they will, and they will be loitering and they will come back and, and bite us on the bum when we least expect it. So I think that's the thing that so many of us were brought up thinking and our parents' generation probably also were brought up with this idea of um, don't talk about it, just carry on, just be cheerful. It's such a British preoccupation, this idea of cheerfulness. But actually, we have to be able to feel all of our feelings. You started writing How to Be Sad after you realised that avoiding or ignoring or attempting to mitigate sadness does not make you more happy. Can you talk a little bit about this discovery and when you realised that actually everyone you knew was doing it, not just you? (laughs) So I had spent uh, the past eight years researching into happiness worldwide. And I began to notice when I went back where we could travel around that many of the people I met or spoke to at events or at talks were so obsessed with the pursuit of happiness as I had been for much of my life that they were quite phobic of feeling sad. And so I would speak to people who had just lost loved ones 
who would ask how they could be happy, or I'd meet people who'd been made redundant or homeless or had a bad breakup who would still ask, so why aren't I happy? And so I would try to explain that sometimes we need to be sad. Sadness is what we're supposed to feel after a loss. And I just felt as though in my work to date on happiness, perhaps I hadn't, perhaps I'd been part of the problem. Perhaps I'd also sort of gone along with this very narrow definition of happiness that meant never being sad. And personally as well, my sister died when I was little and it was not something that was talked about. I was also encouraged to be cheerful, to um, you know get over it, to to get on with my life and be this happy girl. And as a massive people pleaser, terrible, terrible habit, but I had just done that. And so my therapist latterly told me that it was no surprise at all to him that I had gone into happiness research because I was also scared of being sad. And I just figured, actually, this is a problem because sadness happens to all of us. Um, in much of the world, we don't know how to handle it. Suppressing these negative thoughts doesn't work and actually makes us feel worse. And actually experiencing temporary sadness can counterintuitively make us happier, I discovered, speaking to scientists and uh, psychologists and historians and sociologists and sort of experts from all walks of life. There is evidence there that actually experiencing temporary sadness will make us feel more happy long-term and more fulfilled and just more balanced. But I think in much of popular culture and in much of the world, in much of what we read in perhaps self-help books about you can just manifest your way out of any tough times, actually, no, sadness happens. We need to sit with it for a while. And, and that's normal. It helps us connect with our fellow human beings. It's an important emotion and shouldn't be ignored. We just need to know how to do it right. The philosopher Peg O'Connor says that many people now assume that if they are not happy, they are depressed. And I think now more than ever, we deal in absolutes. But humans aren't built to be perpetually happy, are we? It's, it's meant to be a contrastive state. I think in, it's a particularly Western thing, this idea of, of binary, of happy, sad, of, of depressed and not depressed. Whereas actually in, in many East Asian cultures, there is an idea that you can experience more than one emotion simultaneously. Um, there's an idea that you can be happy and sad within the same moment, let alone the same day. And actually in my research, I found that the Americans are, are actually outliers in their desire to minimize negative emotions and pursue happiness. You know, we've all heard of the American dream. Well, actually, there's a real phobia of sadness for many Americans that's probably down to things like, you know, pioneer values, this idea that the people who were these go-getters, these people who um, who did not sit still with so-called negative states, they they went out there and, and they were seen to prosper. So there's a real cultural bias against sadness in the US that I think we've seen borne out over the last 18 months or so can be really problematic. And this polarization, again, is it doesn't do any of us any favors. I looked at different cultural approaches to emotions over the last 10 years or so and worked with um, Desmond Tutu's daughter and granddaughter and Desmond Tutu's granddaughter has written an amazing book called Everyday Ubuntu and Ubuntu is this South African concept of I am because you are and that actually this idea is that I cannot be content and live a fulfilled life if the people around me are suffering are struggling and of course it's not necessarily playing out but this is this is the goal and I do think there is a massive value in, of course, not seeing ourselves as quite so isolated, as quite so individualistic of, of seeing that we have a responsibility as human beings to take care of each other. So I think that's really important to, to sort of stress as well. 
I loved that philosophy of Ubuntu and it really reminded me of the original definition of wellness, which was coined by Halbert Dunn in the 60s. And it was this idea that society could only be well when everyone was well, when the least well people were also well. It was very much a collective um, social ideology. And obviously that's so different to wellness now, which is much more of a business and much more rooted in individualism. We are programmed, if we just were able to strip everything back a little bit, we are programmed to be in this together, to help each other. The whole science of warm glow giving or help us high is is fascinating where um, economists have, have studied brains, our brains, when we do something nice for someone else, where we volunteer or we give money, in an MRI scan, our brains literally light up with the pleasure of doing good. So we should do good because it's the right thing to do, but also it, it, we can see from biologically speaking that we are meant to do that. Our brains are designed to get a buzz from doing that. I love that about warm glow happiness. And it actually really reminds me of Phoebe in Friends, where she tries to do a good deed that doesn't make her also feel good. She's trying to prove that like there is such a thing as an altruistic deed, but everything she does to help someone else also makes her feel a bit better. You know that really old guy that lives next door to me? Well, I snuck over there and, and raked up all the leaves on his front stoop, but he caught me and he like force-fed me cider and cookies. <laughs> and then I felt wonderful. That old jackass. <laughs> but I thought that was actually so important during lockdowns because for lots of people the only moment that they felt any kind of levity or happiness was helping someone else and of course it became really crucial to help other people and really dig into that local community in a way that we lots of us have have moved away from in Denmark, they have a phrase, Samfunsind, or, you know, community mind. And that started being used, or hadn't been used for years and years and years, but started coming up more in the prime minister's speeches and in the press. This idea that we all have to think about each other and, and think together. And there's a Danish philosopher called Svent Blinkman, who would say, actually, at our core, we are, most of us, good people. If we saw a child that fell into a lake and couldn't swim, we wouldn't think it through, we wouldn't think the pros and cons, oh, I'll you know, get my trainers wet. We'd get in there, we'd save that child. And I think trying to hold on to that is really helpful in these days where it's very easy to get, get bogged down or, or feel very cynical about the state of the world. Just trying to remember that there is goodness out there, I think is really important. One of my favourite things about your book is that you look at some of the theories on happiness of which there are a lot. And one of the happiness theories that you look at critically is the theory of U-shaped happiness. This is an extremely well-established idea that you are happiest near the beginning and the end of your life. And then you have this big swooping dip in your middle age where you supposedly have the bulk of responsibilities, young kids, caring for elderly parents. You're often at the peak of your career progression, mortgage payments perhaps. Obviously, the curve isn't intended to be universal, as no theory can be. And scientists have also pointed out that it's more prevalent in high-income countries. But what always niggled at me about this theory is that there is also a lot of good stuff going on for most people in the meat of your life, the growing of children and friendships and careers and homes. And so I was really fascinated to see what you found 
when you looked at it that I hadn't read about before as a reason for that dip? Yeah, it makes me grin just thinking about it because, again, I think there's something quite nice about feeling. Of course, it's not everybody in the world won't be experiencing that, but there's something quite connecting. And it feels as though I can look in the eyes of a man or woman in a similar life stage to me and think, yeah, I get you. I know what you're experiencing. So there's something quite nice that connects us all from that. But um, of course we have, there are joys and there is raising children, there is purpose and there is meaning, but that's not necessarily the name, it's the same thing as, as happiness. Um, in China, there's a term Zing Fu, uh, which is not referring to a good mood, but a good life, one with with purpose and meaning. And it isn't necessarily happy, but it's, it's a good life. And I often think of the U-shaped curve a little like Zing Fu, that we're doing all the good stuff and it's worth it, but it's not necessarily jazz hands happy, rictus grin all the time. And scientists have also found that Yes, for many years, people put it down to the, they did the dip down to the pressures of a whopping mortgage and sleep deprivation with young children or the stresses of raising teenagers or in fact any life stage of, of children rearing. But actually the same trend plays out in monkeys who have none of these same pressures, we presume. Um, and so actually now the theory is that we we need happiness when we are young, we need that sort of I guess that chemical happiness, when our, we have fewer resources, when we're just starting out in the world, say in our 20s in human terms, adolescent monkeys. Um, and then we need that that sort of bushy-tailed, bright-eyed thing to go out there in the world when it can be, it's unknown, it can be challenging, there is a lot of change. And then as we are more settled, perhaps in our middle years, in our 40s, then we perhaps have a bit more stability. And then as we get older and we are, perhaps our, our resources become, become fewer if we are retiring or if we are experiencing poor health, we then need another lift to, to see us into old age. So although most of us wouldn't think of approaching death and feeling near giddy with excitement, studies sh show that actually we do get that little serotonin hit. We do get that little boost as we approach our, our latter years, which I quite love. I think um, it, it can feel quite reassuring, just as the idea of we should be manifesting ourselves into our dream life can, can make me feel pretty low and can make us feel fairly worthless. I think the idea that if we are having a tough time and we are in our 40s, I think the the dip peaks at around 47. I'm currently 41, so a few exciting years ahead. But um, I think there feels like a solid solidarity that everybody I know has caring responsibilities in one way or another, be it parents, be it um, other family members or friends or children. And we are all in this together. and therefore can and, and should support each other. So I don't find it quite such a depressing thought as I did when perhaps I first um, saw the, the bare bones of that of that U-shaped curve. I think I still feel not entirely persuaded <laughs> by it as a theory, just because both of my parents in their 70s totally disagree with it. So I think I'm coming from this biased point of view. Oh, um, interesting, they're not feeling giddy yet. No, they're not feeling good yet. And their 40s was definitely their funnest, happiest, most explorative family time. But I do really like what you say about the evolutionary tendency that you don't just suddenly get giddy because you're about to croak. You, mm -hmm. you need a little lift to get you through that final stage of life where you might feel a bit purposeless or helpless or not rooted in that same way. So you have you have persuaded me a bit more on that. 
<laughs> Another controversial happiness theory is that money doesn't make you happy and that over a certain salary, I think it was last put at around 55,000 in the UK, once your basic needs are met, money can't make you happy. And it does make sense when you consider how desperately unhappy so many incredibly rich people are. But at the same time, that theory is extremely insulting, the epitome of privilege, to so many people, which I completely understand that only someone who has plenty of money could ever suggest that money does not make life so much easier, so much less stressful, so much more pleasurable for you and those around you, and therefore happier. Why do you think this theory has held water for so long, despite so many people feeling that it's categorically not fair or true? Is it an example of this sort of clash between philosophy and realism? That's a great question. I think it's um, it's a form of wishful thinking, isn't it? It's this idea, just as, um, you know, we may speak about a little while, you know, the idea of the baby boomer generation brought with their brought with it their own ideas around happiness i think you know the swinging 60s this idea that love was all that mattered and uh that money wasn't perhaps so important is very different to the, the the fiscal climate that we have come of age in and actually i just wrote an article for bbc science focus magazine about the updated stats on this money can't buy you happiness idea and and yes i'm afraid um it, it can to a degree because it's not that money necessarily buys you happiness but lack of money um it doesn't afford you a lot of the of the, the well-being indicators that we know now that we need to live a good life like education like decent healthcare, um, like housing that is fit for purpose. So yeah, there the the figure that people have sort of agreed varies between countries of what we need to live a comfortable life. I think it's it's now fairly accepted that above a, a certain threshold, we are not going to suddenly become happy if we are billionaires, for example. But I think it's um it's a nice story, it's a nice narrative to tell ourselves that the money isn't going to buy us happiness but of course we know that with with kind of financial inequality as it is right now it's a it's a massive issue and it's a massive problem so yeah to, to pay for the well-being that is necessary to take away some of the anxiety that allows us to be happy it's my long-winded way of saying that does cost money and that is a harsh reality of our modern lives it's not quite as pithy, but do you think we should rename the theory money doesn't buy you happiness over a certain threshold? Yes, exactly. I'll get the T-shirts printed up. Um, it'll be great. Yes, absolutely. And of course, yeah, we Just see in lots of billionaires who are not having a hoot. Yeah, maybe we could get an acronym going. I'll work on it. And now a quick word from my sponsor, Zen Move, an online nationwide law firm that puts the well-being of its clients first. Moving house is stressful. For those lucky enough to be getting on the property ladder, there's a lot to get your head round. Contracts and deadlines and oodles of legal jargon. So why not eliminate that stress with Zen Move and their positive approach to conveyancing? The key is in the name. Their smooth, friendly and clutter-free approach will ensure that no one tears their hair out or forgets to feed the cat while wading through paperwork. Head over to zenmove.co.uk to get a quote and to discuss your move the Zen way. I 
I read a newspaper column recently about how we are all going out of our way in modern life to avoid suffering, which is a necessary part of human experience. And I agree in so much as it being futile trying to avoid it, but the column had a fairly furious response, actually a hugely furious response. And I think a lot of people felt preached to, many of them said that they'd had so much suffering, particularly in the last year, and they would choose to have no more if they could. And only someone who hasn't suffered in their life would suggest otherwise. What do you see as the relationship between sadness and suffering? Oh, I think, um, again, the, the people that I have spoken to, there is a bit of a debate and there is some controversy about whether, you know, pain is unavoidable, but perhaps suffering is is optional. I know that Mo Gaudat believes this. Um, Desmond Tutu would say that, I'm sorry to say, suffering is not optional. And of course, I guess most of us at our base level would would choose perhaps not to have it. But then you think about Brave New World, this idea that if we took, if we took um, a special pill that we would suddenly all not experience pain and not experience suffering anymore. And Aldous Huxley doesn't seem to think that's a terribly good idea either. I think um, from speaking to the neuroscientists and psychologists and psychiatrists that that I that helped me with how to be sad, that actually suffering does bring us together. And not to say that everything happens for a reason, but we do tend to feel our greatest connection to our fellow human beings in times of adversity. And it shows us what people are capable of not to say that we would choose it, but it seems to me that it's going to happen. So we might as well develop some tools and know how to handle it and and not necessarily welcome it, but allow for it because pushing it away and trying to fight it is going to give us extra stress on top of what we're already experiencing, which seems a cognitive load too far, really. It's one of those things that when you talk about it abstractly is makes sense but when you're in the heat of that suffering perhaps it's quite hard not to feel angry to say you know you telling me that my suffering is productive or has a greater goal or will help me in some way is just the most annoying thing ever and also i suppose when someone writes or talks about suffering it's quite hard, especially if you're someone, and I haven't, this is from me reading these people's responses. It's quite hard not to feel like, okay, well, maybe you just haven't had enough of it. If you'd had what I had, you would never be saying that this could be in any way galvanizing or helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not trying to say that it's productive. I I suppose my experience and the experience of the people who I've spoken to and, and worked with and, and loved over the years is that it is not avoidable. So then mm. what, you know, of course, you know, and depression is a chronic mental illness that needs help. I just, to be very clear, I'm not saying that mm -hmm. we should think, oh, well, that's okay then. Sadness can be awakening, suffering is going to happen. So if there is a way that we can better support each other, then surely we should aim for that. I think, yeah, I'm not one of those, you know, good vibes only, everything happens for a reason at all. But I think I don't see a future where all suffering is obliterated. So how can we help each other? Mm -hmm. And you are quite clear to point out the difference between the sadness that you're talking about and depression, which is the perpetual state of sadness, the it being the only 
emotion that you feel rather than incorporating sadness into our emotional keyboard alongside other emotions. Absolutely. And I speak with full disclosure from someone who's experienced both. Um, I've experienced depression off and on for about 20 years. It's a chronic mental illness, as I say. Um, Sadness is this temporary emotion that we all feel on occasions when we've been hurt or something is wrong in our lives. And that is a message and can tell us when something is wrong, but we have to listen. And if we don't listen, it's it's now my belief and from from looking at the data and looking at the research and speaking to the experts on this that it is more likely to tip into something else so we don't do ourselves any favors if we try and block out a part of our emotional vocabulary or spectrum so depression is of course something to seek professional help with there are things that we can do to to try and help ourselves feel okay on a daily basis but sadness is what i'm talking about here as something that is perhaps underexplored in our society and that can be of value or can be um can be dealt with or handled in in a more helpful way i suppose the fear of sadness and also grief the great unmentionables is a particularly western problem we see them as our great adversary You write about how Russia have a very different relationship with sadness. They have dozens of words for it, even for specific types of sadness. Tosca, for example, means great spiritual anguish. And in America, you write that given the choice between happy, sad and nothing, people will choose happy or nothing. But in Russia, they often choose sadness because they think it helps with concentration. Yeah, and I love that. And I think um, there's this idea that I spoke to um, a Russian professor who was saying that her child has been raised in the US. So when she takes her back to to Russia for, for holidays and things, so she's playing with her, her Russian cousins and they go running in the forests and they get their legs stung by nettles and her her daughter is in pieces you know absolutely devastated whereas the russian kids are more of the view that this is what happens this is you run you climb trees you fall you get bruised you get on with it and this idea that um sadness is a big part of even children's stories in russia there is no pressure to have a happy ending there's no um don't cry, there's no, oh, just smile, it might never happen. And in fact, I'd, I'd heard the cliche quite a lot, but in my research that actually, yeah, smiling is sort of seen as, um, you're not entirely to be taken seriously if you smile too much in, in, in Russia. In Russian schools, the, the professor was telling me that actually she would get told off by her teacher for smiling too much. It's it's not considered a goal. Um, and I think that's really interesting. I think it's it's a, there are some benefits to, not raising a generation to say um, to to not run and climb up trees and fall and and scratch your knee and so if we are spending time in nature if we are not just reading stories with happy endings to kids we give them these little doses of sadness and that are manageable and will help them deal with the bigger things when they come and it's also about not dismissing their emotions so I think in the UK for example you still see if you're in a park, you still see um, if a child falls over, like, oh, get up, don't cry, it's okay. Whereas actually, it might be more helpful to say, oh, that must have really hurt. I can see that I can see that you're in pain there. Um, and, and acknowledging that emotion rather than dismissing it can help a child handle it and therefore help the adult handle it. But not 
not to dismiss it, which can then lead to some shame around an emotion. It feels like it's not allowed to acknowledge it and accept it can be quite helpful. And I think in, in Russia with sadness in particular, there is much more acceptance of sadness and it's even venerated in, in some in some places. That was a big takeaway for me from Philippa Perry's book, the book you wish your parents had read, where she talks about validating your children's feelings. So me and my husband now find ourselves constantly saying, yes, I can see how that made you really sad that you couldn't wear the Wellington boot on the wrong foot. And I'm so sorry that that's made you really upset, but I think we'll put it on the other, other foot. But I have to say, I really like the sound of the smiling thing. It does sound pretty austere just thinking, about a load of little children looking like Wednesday Adams. But encouraging children not to feel like they have to be beaming people pleasers all the time could be quite good, I think, because research has shown that men are generally happier than women, but that women smile more, which does insinuate this kind of facade of happiness, of pretending that you're happy when you're not. So by being taught to smile less, certainly if you're a little girl, those Russian children might have a more robust relationship between happiness and smiling. I think so. I think and and a greater sort of resilience. I think there's there's a lot uh, that I that I've studied and have become fascinated by about the idea of trying to be a good girl and trying to be a people pleaser. And uh, I think that doesn't really help anyone. I I try to you know we shouldn't tell a child that they have to say say thank you you know of course we i think we're all sort of clued up to the idea you shouldn't have to say oh go and hug your auntie somebody or kiss your auntie so on so it, it shouldn't be that that they are obliged to um you know show physical affection or be be trying to please people all the time and i think the way that little girls and little boys are raised in terms of what emotions are acceptable in terms of anger has also been a really interesting learning curve the idea that girls are not allowed to be angry and so often it turns inwards and becomes frustration um and the studies show that actually women do cry more but it's because we tend to cry out of frustration because we were taught that our anger was not okay which feels so problematic so as a mother of, of three small kids now it's something i'm very uh, aware of and trying to encourage my, my boys that if they are feeling something and it's probably sadness, there's no need to pull anger down from the shelf. And if my daughter is feeling something and it's probably anger, there's no need to go for sad. Instead, it's it's labeling, as you said in Philippa Perry's amazing book, it's, it's labeling our emotions and helping kids to do that so that when they are adults, they are just a little more emotionally literate than many of us probably are. I'm really fascinated by tears generally because I was raised by a mother who I've, I've never seen her cry and I remember when I was about five and sobbing about something I asked her why she never cried and she said because crying doesn't solve anything and a couple of years ago I actually looked into crying in more depth and I ended up interviewing a tear professor because I really wanted to challenge that myth that women cry more women just cry more you know that's their thing and he said, well, there is no scientific or biological reason for women crying more. It is a, it's a, it's how we've been socialized to deal with, as you say, anger and frustration and the various inequalities that women have faced. That, that has been 
that has been made available to us as a response. And, and it works both ways, detrimentally, men and boys being raised to not have that as a go-to emotion or to go to it very rarely. I think that's really problematic, isn't it? That actually, yeah, I, I spoke to the tier professor as well, Ad Vingdehoeks, he's amazing. <laughs> yes. and, and he was talking about how, yeah, by the age of 10 or 13, I think by then boys have already got the message, you know, boys don't cry. You think, oh, that's so sad. It's so sad. Um, and yes, we should all be able to use whichever emotion feels most appropriate for what we're experiencing. So yeah, there's a lot of work to be be done on both sides. And, I, and I'm very careful, I hope, to to make this a book for men and women that I'm not trying to say, oh, the patriarchy have ruined it for everyone. The patriarchy have ruined it for, well, they have actually, no, I take that back. Patriarchy have ruined it for men and women because there are these these emotions that men are told they can't have. And there are these emotions that women are told that they must be sort of um, funneled into, neither of which is helpful. It does a disservice to, to all of us. So yeah, I think um, it's something I'm really conscious of now, of trying to get some equality there. You relay the history of sadness in fascinating detail. I was really interested to speak to a few uh, historians who specialise in the Victorian era. And actually the Victorians, for all we think of them as perhaps repressed, they they were rich in rituals to cope with loss. And that's no accident at the time. People were living um, in very close quarters. Death was all around. Before the, the introduction of med medical death certificates, you would have to get rid up close to somebody and you'd have to feel for their pulse and you'd have to feel for their breath to feel if someone was dead so death was an ongoing conversation and there were rituals in place to help people deal with it and studies show that if we have rituals of any kind they will help us you see around the world conflicting rituals some you know completely contradictory but it doesn't matter what we're doing the point is that we're doing something and that helps us go through the process of of feeling that sadness and grieving a loss. The, the, the First World War and then the influenza epidemic of 1918, that sort of called time on these really extravagant funerals and rituals because the sheer scale of the loss meant that mourning on that level was, was no longer possible. And then came World War II. So to get through the Second World War, Churchill urged Brits to put on a brave face and to you know, keep calm and carry on, not his words, but really associated with his spirit. And despite his own melancholy and dark moods, there was this encouragement of a sort of buttoned upness that had a ripple effect out into society and still impacts us today in the UK and the US especially. And then it was really interesting to speak to um, psychologists today in the US who have studied the boomer generation that, that followed. So the generation whose parents were raised during war and had this sort of buttoned upness. And the boomer generation I discovered actually really rebelled against that as we all often rebel against our parents, but they didn't want to be this kind of buttoned up, the repressed um, with, a, with a sort of intolerance of emotion. They wanted to be more emotionally open and for us, this be kind of became the start of protecting the ego. So suddenly it was okay to feel, but they wanted to feel happy, which is understandable. Again, you know, that the, the generation before had been through so much. So there was this idea that you were allowed to feel, but it should be happy. And then the boomers' children, mm. um, <laughs> again, wanted to try and um, 
try and make sure that we were protected and we were sheltered and, and there was some cotton wool involved and some coddling. So we're the snowflakes. Suddenly, <laughs> yes, well, you know, it's this idea of, I'm, I think I'm sort of Gen X millennium cusp, but this idea that sadness, you didn't really, you, you were kind of allowed to feel sad, but if as a parent, you let your child feel sad, that was not good. So it's just, I just found it fascinating. It was all during a period of, of a bed rest when I was pregnant with twins and I am quite small and I was just sort of laid out. So all I had was sort of dusty history books around me and a few very kind professors on speed dial as I was sort of researching into all of this. And it just, you almost kind of, I felt my, my the four white walls of the room transform and the scales fell from my eyes. And I felt like I was sort of seeing past and present a lot more clearly. Things just seemed to make sense a lot more with this historical understanding, which I think it's it's such recent history for, for so many of us that we don't learn it at school, but I think it's really valuable. So it was very interesting for me to understand where, for example, my mother and my grandmother's approach to sadness and this idea of what you don't talk about can't hurt you, where that came from. Um, and I hope that we, with this knowledge, we can do things differently if we choose. You also found the work of Kierkegaard extremely relevant, didn't you? What can we learn from this 19th century philosopher? Yes, I became a bit obsessed, actually. I developed a bit of uh, Kierkegaarditis, but he, he was um, very big on despair. So he would say that there is bliss in melancholy and sadness. And actually, he had this idea. I mean, the first one, a really great, simple one that he felt like he there were a few problems that could not be made um, at least clearer by going for a good walk. And I'm, yeah, I'm all over that. And he also felt that, um, again, sadness could be a message, despair could be a message that we just had to stop and listen to it. And that despair was necessary for change. And I found this really interesting, having written a book about change before, but not necessarily paying attention to Kierkegaard at this stage, that actually despair and sadness is a, they are sensations that make us stop in our tracks. They, they, they wash over us when something is wrong and we perhaps don't know how to fix it. So it's quite, quite a creative state of mind, which might not immediately come to mind when we, when we think about sadness or despair, but actually if something stops us in our tracks and we are forced to think our way out of a tricky problem, that can be incredibly enriching. So it, it again, it won't feel nice. It doesn't feel comfortable. It's it's difficult, but we are likely to come out the other side um, with new knowledge, still with that pain possibly, but with a new perspective on things. And Kierkegaard was really good on that. And also, again, a bit like Aristotle's idea that to live a good life, you're also going to need some luck. Tough things will happen. Kierkegaard sort of felt um, he he notoriously was um, a bachelor to his dying day and he he was going to marry someone and then decided not to, but he would just say, get married, uh, be unhappy. Don't get married, be unhappy. It's all the same. And I think there is some sort of comfort in that. And maybe I've just been in Scandinavia with Nordic Noir for too long, but this idea that whatever decision we make, there are going to be pros and cons and to be a bit more pragmatic and a little less Hollywood ending about stuff, I think is quite helpful. And I have to say, I particularly like that in regards to marriage, because there was obviously that really prevailing um, social narrative that getting married was the only way to be happy. And then recently you had Paul Dolan at Hay Festival having everyone up in arms because he said actually marriage made men happy and women unhappy. So I feel like we're sort of ricocheting from one to the other. I actually really like the idea that you could be um, miserable either way. Yes, yes. But with that, yeah, that Paul Dolan stuff, 
it's it's very interesting. I'm not sure how I feel about it. How do you feel about it? <laughs> yeah. It it makes sense when you break it down as to what he's saying is that um it's all to do really with the unequal load in a heteronormative relationship I think isn't it that women mm -hmm. take on more of the emotional and cognitive load so they're just a lot more stressed and women end up doing quite a lot for men so they get those bonuses that they don't have as a bachelor but it's obviously like a very not everyone is going to have it depends what your relationship looks like doesn't it, it, it not everyone's going to have the same experience of it yeah it, it's it's sort of a bleak prospect and I think there is, I spoke to the, the Harvard psychologist Tal Ben-Shahar about um, something called arrival fallacy, this idea that when we get the thing we've been working towards, we'll suddenly feel okay. And I was really interested in whether uh, marriage and, and motherhood or parenthood could come under these categories of things that we feel arrival fallacy when we when we sort of in inverted commas get there and he said absolutely yes because of the way um hollywood again has portrayed relationships mm. or the um the whole industry that has grown up around what parenting should look like and if you, if you really want to be doing your best for your child you should be doing baby einstein or getting down on the floor with them and doing this <laughs> that and the other and um i found that really helpful this uh, because being yeah as kierkegaard said be, you know being married is really really hard not being married has its own challenges. It's all hard. You just choose your hard and learning not to expect perhaps so much from it and not expecting everything from one partner seems quite sensible. We wouldn't have historically in, in the sort of family setups that we are designed for. We wouldn't be living in a house with one other grown up and children and expecting to get all of our needs met by one person. It's crazy. So I think that's always worth remembering as well. Yes, I've been wittering on to absolutely everyone recently about Esther Perel's 2006 book, um, Mating in Captivity, where yes, she says... Yes, it's, it's on my pile now. She says that, you know, two of the massive issues are that we live for way too long. So you're not getting married for 20 years, you're getting married for about 75 now, given that, you know, so many millennials are going to live till they're 100. And also, we no longer live in those communities and we're expecting to get absolutely everything from one person and then still find them sexy. I also subscribe, by the way, quite heavily to arrival fallacy. I get that really badly. And so now I spend a lot of time saying to myself, value the process, value the process. You're in the process right now. How are you finding the process? <laughs> Trying yeah. not to do that awful thing of thinking, oh, I'll feel so great when I finish this and actually not taking stock of any of the journey, which is obviously where the greatest reward comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And it's that it's everything is a wriggly, a, a curvier path than we might expect. And this came into the the sadness um, idea because so many of us feel this huge anticlimax when we when we get to the things that we've been working towards, which makes sense. Like we are, you know, evolutionarily wired to um, to hunt, to seek. And when we when we get the thing we've been we've been searching for, the dopamine drops off. So it's perfectly normal to feel that crash that many of us, are, yeah, we don't necessarily wise up to it. So talking to, to Tal Ben-Shahar as well about perfectionism and something I've been massively guilty of previously over the years, but this idea that per perfectionism, I think when I was growing up, it was certainly the one acceptable flaw you could write on your CV, but actually it's, it's dangerous and it's daft and there are so many health problems associated with it and it, it doesn't make us feel any better. And 
will not only make us feel sad, it'll make us downright miserable. It's a, it's a sunk cost, the effort we may have put into being a perfectionist, no matter what it has got us. He is very clear now, and, and a lot of Harvard research supports that, that we could probably have got there um, without so much stress, without the perfectionism, which is a hard thing to hear, I think, if you've, if you've been a good girl, you've tried your best your whole life. The idea that you could have achieved what you have achieved without some of the stress, without these perfectionist tendencies, can be difficult to hear, but I think is is an important lesson to learn and an important one to try to pass on to our kids, I think, especially in super competitive British cities these days. I think perfectionism is really interesting because it can have a bit of an eye-rolly reputation. You know, what's your biggest fault? Oh, I'm just too much of a perfectionist. But actually, it is incredibly irritating for everyone around you and the perfectionists themselves. And I say that as a perfectionist because it often means that you can't let, for me, it means I don't let work go. Um, so everyone is stuck with a project for longer than they'd want because I can, it's never quite good enough. It's never quite finished. Um, it slows you down and it takes the fun out of things. The joy sapping is is certainly one that that rings true. I, without with wishing to instrumentalise my children, I think it has fallen off a cliff slightly since becoming a parent because I just don't have as much bandwidth. And I guess anybody mm. with caring responsibilities may feel the same way that I, you know, as long as my children don't pick up any communicable diseases and we don't have mice in the house, that's about the level of my domestic standards these days. Um, and so far, everybody is alive and in in possession of their full emotional range. So that feels like a helpful thing. But yeah, it's 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 very hard. And I think, you know, I worked in women's magazines for years. There is a lot out there encouraging us to aim higher and higher all the time. And just as the manifesting doesn't work, that, that doesn't work either. The only way I can even entertain being a perfectionist at work is because it's chaos in the rest of my life. I never know where my debit <laughs> or my credit card is. I'm not allowed to be in possession of my passport. I'm late everywhere. I wanted to end on asking you about low expectations. You wrote that lower expectations make happiness easier to achieve. And it reminded me of something Oliver Berkman once wrote, that happiness equals reality minus expectations. At the risk of ending the interview on a painfully pithy note, do you have any tips for how we can foster low expectations without losing any hope or optimism? Yeah, I think perspective is key here. For me, um, historical perspective is always helpful. Thinking back, okay, for thousands of years, we have we have been through a lot. We have survived a lot. We have thrived in some instances, but in other times things will feel hard. There's also huge value, lots of scientific studies to show that just getting up high, be it a hill, be it a tree, anything or where we can see the ocean, anything where we can just see or imagine even something bigger than ourselves. And again, back to this idea of Ubuntu, this idea that we are all in this together, a sense of perspective can help us when things feel overwhelming, when we are perhaps get the inkling that our expectations are too high or that they might need re-evaluating. And a sense of perspective can really help us to, to ground ourselves. And I think as well, give ourselves permission to to feel what we are feeling. We are small flecks in the history of the world, but also we are all valuable because we are all human beings. We are a small flex in the history of the world. 
I really like that. That's a wonderful note to end on. Helen, thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure to speak to you. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Doing It Right. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. And if you'd like, you can buy my book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? From any bookshop you like, Independent Always Better, Try Hive if you're shopping online, in which I discuss lots more of the myths and anxieties of modern life.